Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and on behalf of all 625 employees of the Motley Fool, working from our homes around the world, I want to wish you and yours the very best this holiday season. There's a lot going on. Hope you get a little time to relax and unwind. Next week on the show, we're going to have our investing preview of 2022 with lots of stocks in the mix. But for Christmas weekend, wanted to take a step back from stock investing and bring you two conversations I really enjoyed, and I hope you will too. Later in the show, it's with actor, investor, and entrepreneur Chris Diamantopoulos. But up first, it's CNBC anchor Carl Quintanilla. He hosts Squawk on the Street every weekday morning at 9 a.m. with Jim Cramer and David Faber. I first got to know Carl over a decade ago when he was one of the hosts of Squawk Box. He was also reporting on primetime documentaries that CNBC produced on trends like extreme sports, social media, as well as individual companies like Costco. Before that, he was part of the NBC News team that covered the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in 2005, coverage that led to a slew of awards, including broadcast journalism's highest honor, the Peabody Award. I wanted to learn more about his career path, so before the pandemic, I traveled to New York City to sit down with Carl in person. We talk about his leap from a small newspaper to the Wall Street Journal, from newspapers to television and from reporting to anchoring a live three-hour show. It's a remarkable career that demonstrates, among other things, a tremendous work ethic, which is even more remarkable when you consider that, by Carl's own admission, he was not the greatest student. His family moved around a lot when he was a kid, spending time in various states, one of which is Colorado. So when it was time for college, that's where Carl headed. So. What drew you back to University of Colorado? Well, parents lived there. Mom lived there, for one, so in-state tuition. Um, they said yes. <laughs> that was really the two things I needed to hear. What, you were not a good student? <laughs> not terribly, no. Really? Oh, yeah. Not, and, and in Boulder, it's not a, I mean, I love Boulder. Um, it's not a place to be, it's easy not to be a serious student. There's so many distractions. Um, and I knew what I, I knew what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew I wanted to be in media somehow. I thought newspapers, radio, television, but didn't have time for biochemistry. Come on, you know. So um, I go back though. Sometimes I speak uh, to the business school. So I love it, but I was not the most disciplined kid. So what did you study at Colorado? So I was poli sci major, and I figured I would try to get to Washington and cover the White House or something like that. And I did an internship at NPR, at All Things Considered, and loved it. Um, but uh, the journal, um, Wall Street Journal, was the one internship that I got, and that sort of introduced me to business and never looked back. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you about next was, the way that your resume reads uh, in terms of media entities, it's the Boulder Daily Camera, <laughs> which I'm sure is a fine newspaper very fine. <laughs> with good people running it, from there to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, That's quite a leap. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know how many kids they took from Boulder, but uh, I remember I applied that summer 
for an internship at the Washington Post, and I and I got an interview, uh, which obviously didn't go well. Uh, the Times, Boston Globe, Miami Herald, Chicago Tribune, L.A. Times. I mean, I that was my thing, and it was just I'm going to get something great, and it was the journal that paid off. I mean, sometimes you can shoot with uh, you know a shotgun, but only one pellet hits, and that but that's all you need. So you get to the Wall Street Journal. What do they have you doing right out of the gate? Uh, my first, my remember, my very first story was three M earnings, um, and it was a disaster because I didn't, I had never covered finance. I didn't, I mean, I didn't understand income statements or balance sheets, and uh, it was not a long story, probably ten paragraphs. But I filed it in three takes, meaning. Sent three graphs, then sent three more, then sent three more to New York, and I was nervous as hell, and um, didn't really think I understood what I wrote. So, uh, somehow got something together, and then the next morning it was the top of the ten point, um, and uh, I remember we were in the elevator with some one of the other reporters, and he said, "Hey, nice story, top of the ten point. It's the first thing the president reads in the morning." Which I don't know if that's true or not, but I was like, "Oh." Oh my God! What am I doing here? Because <laughs> it seems to me that there are two big leaps that you make, and one is from the Boulder Daily Camera. Again, no disrespect uh, to the Wall Street Journal, and then the other is from Boulder, Colorado, to New York City. I mean, that I'm I'm assuming the adjustment is not small. Um, it was more uh, it was more of a bend than a than a stair step. You know, late '90s. Working in a newspaper in a bureau, um, you sort of saw what was happening to newspapers um, in general. Even though the economy was great, um, but they were putting television cameras in all the bureaus, and it was becoming increasingly uh, important that you be on the current. Being on TV was going to be a currency. You could see it 20 years ago, um, and I wanted to move to New York to work for the paper. So when they said, "Would you like to go on CNBC and sort of be our guy on CNBC?" I said, "I'll try it for a month, and if I don't like it, then you have to promise me a gig at the paper, but staying in New York." And they said, "Sure." And as anybody who's done TV knows or done broadcast, once you're in it and it's you see how immediate it is and how collaborative it is, and you're working with engineers and producers and photographers and editors.、Um, In a, in a much more、uh, collaborative way, as, as compared to print, where it, you're, it's so solitary, it's you and your phone, you and your notebook, and you and your rental car. That's really what being a print guy is about. And this was—it's just—it was a great, refreshing chapter two in New York. And I thought, let's let's see where this goes. And, and then、um, there never was a reason to go back. So when you started CNBC. What do they have you doing? I'm assuming 3M earnings. <laughs> they should have.、Um, my first piece for TV was about Revlon and、um, some bond rollover that Ron Perlman had to make or something.、Uh, but it was about the challenges of the cosmetics industry. It had already been done in the papers. And I remember I went into the assignment editor's office, and he goes, "Welcome to basically welcome to television. Here's your piece for today. This is your your first piece. I want you to do this Revlon story. Here's the story. <laughs> It's in the newspaper, but as you'll see, television is a derivative medium.、Um, so see what you can do with this. And、uh, you had to sort of reverse engineer the print story, 
and write it for television, which is much, which is a really fun exercise, because the listener can't jump ahead. You have to. It's very linear. Um, you can have fun with um, backdrops and pace and uh, sound, and uh, I, I just, I just thought it was really great. I mean, I, I had already been in public radio, so I was sort of used to that method of storytelling, and. Um, and then I remember I had to wrap the piece on set. Um, so you run the tape package, you come out to me on set for a little 15-second tag, and then I toss it back to the anchors, you know, just as like like local news. And I had to have makeup. I had never had, had makeup done before, and um, earpieces, and uh, the weird, you know, equipment infrastructure of television. <laughs> and there, you're nervous. There's lights everywhere. Um, but once you're through it, you're like, wow, that's kind of neat, kind of, you know, and you bet you're still working the same muscles you'd worked before. Coming up after the break, before he gets called to the anchor desk at CNBC, Carl Quintanilla gets called to New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Hope you're having a good Christmas weekend. Here's more of my conversation with CNBC anchor Carl Quintanilla. I want to go back to the reporting for a second because, yes, TV news is uh, in a lot of ways derivative of printed news. But when I look at the work you've done, um, not just at CNBC, but sort of at other NBC-owned properties, you know, you get tapped for coverage of Hurricane Katrina, you get tapped for Olympic coverage. Um, so, I'm assuming there's uh, a reporting element that kicks in when you're going to do stuff like that, mm. particularly in the case of Katrina. Yeah. I mean, Katrina was, I mean, nothing, A, very few things compared to doing wars, which I really, I, I covered some of Iraq, but not the worst, um, and hurricanes, because all of your infrastructure is being strained or cut off. Um, and I mean, I mean, getting a signal out of your truck. I mean, uh, getting past you know a point on the road that's blocked or flooded. Um, so being in, we were in New Orleans for I guess almost a month. We got down the night before the storm, and then we were live for today's show. At, uh, the storm sort of hit in the morning, um, and then we were there for a month, and then we came back again and again throughout the fall, uh, doing stories on reconstruction. And that's, I mean. Uh, you have to show that. That story has, it's, it is sadly made for television. You know, that's the only way you can sort of shake people by their lapels and show them what's happening is, uh, is hearing it and seeing it. So, um, hugely challenging, very emotional, uh, uh, hard to think about sometimes, especially given sort of the socioeconomic challenges this neighborhood already had. Um, but, uh, yeah, life-changing, but my, by far my most rewarding professional experience. How, and I, I'm not asking you to reveal corporate secrets here, but I am curious how you or anyone in your position at, say, CNBC uh, or any of the other NBC-owned networks gets tapped for other coverage. How? Do, does the head of NBC News just go to the head of CNBC and say, we need people to cover this, I want mm. the following? Well, in, in my case, I had made, I had left CNBC technically to come work for 30 Rock. 
So I was an NBC News employee. Um, so I was part of the artillery here. But yeah, I mean, if there's cross-pollination, then yeah, I mean, that's that's def that definitely happens. You look at where your assets are deployed, just like a game of risk. Who's in position to cover this? If this happens, can we have them? But in my case, I was—I remember I was at a Cubs game in Chicago with my buddies in from out of town, and the news desk called, and uh, and said we need, we need you to go to New Orleans tonight. We think this is going to be a big one. I was like, I can't go to New Orleans tonight. I have four buddies sleeping with me, and we're at Wrigley right now. I was literally at Mother's. I forget which bar I was at. Um, but you know, when you're when you're 30 years old and trying to make a name in a you know, a politically complex organization like any major news organization is, you go. So I went, and of course, the be very smart thing, I would have been remiss not to go. Um, but uh, sometimes the the chemistry of news assignments is bewildering. I'll say that. I'm assuming it's, and you've already spoken to this. It's an adjustment going from print to television. Going from anything to television, just as you said, there's the makeup, there's the lights, there's all that sort of thing. Even when you're just doing a 15-second package at a network desk, what is the leap like when you get tapped to start co-hosting a live three-hour show? Because I have to believe, in the case of Squawk Box and then Squawk on the Street, that's that's another adjustment. Mm. Um, I, I think the uh, one of the I guess the answer is one of the hardest tricks you have to learn is uh, how to strategically collect acorns across a slew of um, topics. So in the morning, you'll find me years later, but in the very much the same way, collecting string on Saudi, right? Um, this upgrade of. Uh, who got the upgrade today? Uh, Comcast got a buy rating out of, uh, I think it was City, uh, and trying to assemble some talking points out of that because I don't know, could the conversation turn to that? Maybe. Your bandwidth has to get very wide relative to, you know, here's your story. You're going to have two minutes to get it across to the viewer. You might be asked a question or two, but it's probably going to be about this. Uh, whereas in an, an anchor, I mean, in as an anchor, you sort of have a guest list of people who are going to be on the show, but that's subject to change. You know, when we were on the air, if I remember, for some reason, I always remember the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, I didn't know a lot about bomb making uh, or this what was happening at that moment in, in Boston, but we all learned very quickly. So you can still get caught off guard. So you're just trying to hedge against that. You're trying to minimize the possibility that you're going to run out of things to say, uh, ask questions about, um, and, or, or, and, and somehow follow that, that string. It's, um, you know, it's, an, it's a skill, I will say. And I, don't, you know, I, I know everybody does it in their own way. Some people, they make a bet that, you know what, I'm probably not going to be asked about this. So I'll save some time and, and not, like this morning, this Dell Carl Icahn story. It's not going to be my, if I have to weigh in, I may, but if I don't have to, I won't. So I'll use that time to focus on something else. What time does your day begin? Usually just before 7, uh, and we're on at 9. So a couple hours to, you know, cram. It is very much, it's like a cram. So you're on the set by 7? Well, no, I'm, I'm just in the, in the stock exchange, but on a separate area on, in a balcony at a desk, just trying to drink 
I might tweet deck him like a fire hose. Um, there's very little. Uh, there's very little talking. I don't. I don't get a lot of calls. Uh, Faber makes a lot of calls. My co- my co-host David Faber, who's trying to get the read from various hedge fund managers and lawyers and bankers. Um, but for me, I, I'm I'm really trying to get a table set, uh, and um, so I, I can I tend to do that mostly in silence and on my computer. I realize that he might not love it all that much, and you might not love it all that much. But I will say, as a viewer, it is pretty great watching your show live, and all of a sudden, David Faber just turns to you and says, I need to go take this call. (laughs) And he basically just disappears, which goes to your point about, hey, you have to be prepared for anything, because at some point, your co-host may say, I'm leaving for a while. (laughs) Yes. That doesn't happen that much on um, uh, uh, a daytime syndicated show. Right. right? They're going to be there for the hour. That's the thing about live television. Got to be ready for anything. Every weekday morning from 9 a.m. to noon on CNBC, you can watch Carl Quintanilla, hard at work. Coming up after the break, it's Chris Diamantopoulos. You may have seen him with Dwayne Johnson and Ryan Reynolds in the Netflix action comedy film Red Notice. We talk about his work on HBO's comedy series Silicon Valley, where he played Russ Hanneman, the -the over-the-top billionaire investor. And we also talk about his voiceover work as the most iconic character in animation history, Mickey Mouse. Chris is also an investor. We talk about how he started investing when he was a struggling actor. He was living in New York City, not making much money and spending most of what he was making, until a friend in the theater community got him thinking about investing seriously for the first time in his life. In addition to his acting career, Chris Diamantopoulos is also a judge on the new investing-focused reality show, Unicorn Hunters. Like the name suggests, a panel of judges that includes Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak is looking for startups with the potential to become the next billion-dollar businesses. The added twist is that viewers at home can have the opportunity to invest as well. That's all coming up, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Riding on the city of New Orleans Illinois Central, Monday morning rail Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Three conductors, twenty-five sacks of mail Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Earlier this month, I caught up with Chris Diamantopoulos, one of the judges on the new investing reality show, Unicorn Hunters. There are a bunch of things I want to get to, but let, let's start with the latest episode of Unicorn Hunters, which I watched. And I don't, I don't want to spoil the episode for anyone, but the the company was fascinating to me. It's this Philadelphia-based uh, company called UE Life Sciences. Um, they're focused on early detection of cancer in women. And I, I was surprised by how I felt watching this episode, because uh, as an investor, I was interested in thinking about the, the business opportunity. But at one point, I realized what I was feeling was hope. I just, I just thought, oh, I'm so glad that there are smart people out there focused on challenges like this. Um, obviously, you and Steve Wozniak and the other judges are evaluating the business potential, but I'm curious if 
If that struck you as well, if at some point you just thought, oh, this, this is a company that's actually trying to do some good in the world. I think what I love about this show, particularly the idea that my fellow panelists bring to this, is that it will be a financially viable success if it adds value to the world somehow. And so these people that are coming on, particularly uh, this entrepreneur that you mentioned, they're, they're, you know, they're scientists, they're uh, uh, entrepreneurs, they're looking to build a business, but they're, the only way that they can build a business is if they save lives. And there's something just so, I mean, it really is kind of capitalism at its finest, right? It's, it's the notion that we can build, we can grow, and we can help. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, that was a long-winded way of saying, oh, not only did it cross my mind, it was the first thing that I noted. It was this full body goosebump, this notion of, okay, so cameras and lights and makeup and a TV show and buzzwords and, oh, we've got this. And all of that falls away when you realize that somebody's life in South Asia is going to be saved because this person developed this thing. And, and I, I just, I was, I was humbled to be there and uh, really grateful that I had the opportunity. One of the things we've uh, talked a lot about at our company is particularly with younger companies, startup companies, um, there, there is a, uh, in some ways, a proud tradition, particularly in Silicon Valley, uh, the whole idea of fake it till you make it, that, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to uh, convince people, you're trying to raise money, all that sort of thing. Um, and there are times when that can backfire, um, where it's, you know, the, the fake it till you make it doesn't really work out. It ends up being more fake. And so I, uh, all of this is prelude to this question. Um, what are the things that you look for when, you know, when you're sitting? And as you said, yes, it's a TV show and, you know, lights, cameras, makeup, all that. But ultimately, you kind of have to make a judgment call on the person standing in front of you. And I'm, I'm curious what, what you and some of the other you, panelists look for to try and sort of tip that balance to say, yeah, I, I believe this person to the point where I'm willing to commit money. You know, I, I ask my kids anytime they start telling me a story about something, uh, if, if it looks like it's veering off path or if it looks like it's taking a long time to get there, I, I pause and I say, remember the three, remember the three. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? So go through the go through that checklist. If you've got one of those in there, you know, make sure it's a big one. But but ideally two or three of those before we carry on with this story, right? So now it's not necessarily, you know, true, necessary, and kind when it comes to investing, but I think there's there actually is something to that. First of all, is it needed? Is this something that I can see? Forget about me as an investor, but just me in this life. I mean, look, if there's anything that the last 18 months has taught us, it's that we are all in this together. This giant soup, there is no distinction between a, you know, a, a student with student loans or a housewife and Bezos. I mean, yes, there are these, you know, things on paper that would, that would, you know, vastly separate them. And yet we're all in this. This is what we got. So when someone comes out there to sell something, to build a company, it's is is it necessary? Is this something that I that I that I will, you know, that I would read about and think, oh God, I can't believe they're pouring money into blank. Or, oh wow, I can't believe that it took till 2021 for somebody to think of this. So really it's is it necessary? The next thing is, is how will this impact 
me? How will this impact the world? How will this, you know, if it is necessary, oh yeah, it's necessary, but, you know, in building this, the emissions will, you know, destroy more of the rainforest or, or, or yada, 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 right? So I, I, it really does go back to that. Yes, the, the, and then, and then, and then, then the next thing would be, you know, can this business grow? Can this be a business that I see actually growing uh, in, in any sort of multiple form? So it starts with, I think it does go back to that. There is an ethical component. There's this component of, and, that, and that's really what I think that, that Unicorn Hunters does so well, because who they bring to the table is not just a business or an entrepreneur that's on track to become a billion dollar company, and that's a marvelous thing, but it's how are they gonna get there? Why are they gonna get there? It's because they're impacting us, all of us, in a way that's going to hopefully help us get out of some of the jams that we've gotten into, and that's exciting to me. Well, and one of the things I enjoyed about the episode is, look, this is, you know, in this case, um, it's a business and a mission that um, you root for, that everyone would root for in terms of global health. Um, there's still skepticism. There's still, like, I appreciated the fact that, you know, some of the questions coming from you and some of the other panelists was, like, look, this is uh, like we have we have actual questions about how you're going to do this. And, and it's what true. Does it work for? It's true. Because, look, I, I, and again, all of that, all of the uh, emotional component, as 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 um, illuminating as it can be into the mindset of the entrepreneur, it doesn't really answer the basic fiscal questions, right? So uh, it's great to have a great mission statement, but what do they say? You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So um, the road to financial hell can also be paved with good intentions. So I, I do believe that. Ultimately, once you get the message, once you get past the message, once you get past the um, uh, ethical or, or um, health-related uh, uh, positive elements that, 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 that this business can have, you really need to get down to the very basics of how scalable is the business? Uh, you know, what what do these medical units cost um, per unit? How are we going to get them to where they need to get? Are they going to disrupt uh, something that's already in the market? Um, how are they planning on marketing it? Is it is it consumer based? Is it you know going into medical practices? Of course, this is just for that one product you're talking about. But I think that these ideas. Um, uh, can be correlated to almost any any entrepreneur coming in and pitching. The idea is is key. The mission statement is fabulous, but unless you have a solid path forward in terms of how the business is going to function and how it's going to make money, um, then all you're left with is oh, wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been a wonderful idea? And one of the things we've uh, talked about a lot over the years at the Motley Fool is. Um, investing is not really taught in our schools in the way that it, it probably should be. And so typically people, people take many different paths to becoming an investor. And a lot of people don't take any path at all, which is unfortunate. Um, a lot of times it's, it's a mentor or just someone in our lives who sort of points us in the direction. So I'm curious, who is the person who first got you interested in investing in business in general? That's a really great question. I mean, you know, before I ever actually invested anything, my only uh, influences were Hollywood, of course, right? You know, you, you, you see movies like Wall Street and you're just mesmerized. Um, I was quite reticent to become an investor in any capacity, mainly because I had absolutely no knowledge and I had absolutely no money. So when I was a man, it wasn't really anything that I focused on because anytime I'd make a thousand dollars, I'd spend 
999 of it. You know, I didn't, I just didn't have any concept of it. Um, there's a good friend of mine named, named Dr. Barry Cohn, whom I met uh, when I first got into the Broadway community. Um, and he's this, this wonderful, remarkable and, and peculiar figure, um, who uh, altruistically, um, has for many, many years, um, done, uh, pro bono medical work for the Broadway community. He, he made a healthy amount in investing in, in, in various things. And he, he wanted to give back to the Broadway community. And I met him that way. And it was actually early conversations with, uh, with Dr. Cohn that got me thinking about, you know, a little, a, a little bigger and a little further down the line and okay, well, you know, right now I've only got $3,000 in my bank account, but maybe one day I'll have 30. And what would I do with that? And, and it was really in talking to him and, 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 and demystifying, taking away a lot of the sort of, um, both the over excitement of what it could be and the doomsday of what it could be. And really just sort of looking at it very simply and saying, look, if you have X and what you want to do is get to Y, there are a few ways to get there that, you know, some of them might be bumpier than others. And it really just depends on what your goal is and what your risk tolerances are. And in having some of those conversations, I, uh, I learned what type of investor I am. And I started to become more and more interested in it. More after the break, so stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Back to Motley Fool Money, Chris Hill talking with investor, entrepreneur, and actor Chris Diamantopoulos. I have to ask you about Russ Hanneman. Um, and for those uh, unfamiliar, those who have not watched the uh, HBO comedy series Silicon Valley, uh, Russ Hanneman is a billionaire investor who shows up in season two. Um, he is outrageous and over the top and has one of my favorite qualities in. Uh, in comedy, which is that he's not the smartest guy in the room, but he thinks he is. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I, I'm sure he was a fun character to play, but I, I am curious. Like, was there was there research specific to the business world that you did, you know, in the actual Silicon Valley to get ready for that? You know, it, I had deep conversations with Mike Judge and Alec Berg, who, who created the show, about this character, and all of the conversations circled around the fact that. Every element of this character's persona and his actions were drawn from reality, so much so that much of what they wanted to present the character with, they couldn't even enter onto screen because no one would believe it, and it was true. I mean, there's this very, very memorable, funny moment where the character, where Russ Hanneman um, uh, brags about uh, uh, subverting fatherhood uh, and, and because he, he had one of his engineers, um, reverse engineer his Sonos system, uh, to be this AI called the lady that told his son when it was time to go to bed or when it was time to pick up his dishes or when it was time to eat. So he could be the cool guy. And I thought that was just so funny. And, and I was informed that that was true, that that was simply <laughs> drawn from, from experience. Um, you know, as an actor, 
the best tools you can have are, you know, as much information about the character as possible. Um, the only tool that's better than that is writing that's so ironclad that you don't have to do any research because it's all on the page. Um, and I found that these writers on Silicon Valley were the best I'd ever worked with. Um, any questions I had were so easily answered, but the situation, the character, the nuance was all on the page. And so it was just a joy to show up and perform it. Uh, you mentioned Mike Judge and Alec Berg, uh, creators of the show. I, one year, I went to South by Southwest, and I think it was right before season. It might have been before season two, maybe season three. But anyway, they were they were speaking, and um, you know, one of the questions they got from the moderator was, you know, a, a running joke, particularly early in the show Silicon Valley, is about. Um, how every company, regardless of their business, you know, they can be a software business, you know, a, a B2B, that sort of thing. And they still have in their mission statement, they're making the world a better place. <laughs> and so um, Judge and Berg got this question about like, you know, what now that the show is a hit and like, what is the reaction you get from Silicon Valley from businesses? And they said that, um, oh, the, the doors are still open if we still, you know, because they want to make the show authentic and, and, uh, and all that stuff. And so they said, oh, no, 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 it's great. Because now what happens is they welcome us in and they say, we love your show. We love how you make fun of companies that say they're making the world a better place. And then they will say, deadly serious, but you know, here at this company, we actually are. We actually are making the world. <laughs> That's very, very um, so true. Um, so, with that as a backdrop, what reaction did you get once you show up uh, in season two as well, this character, as this over the top? Was was it people saying like, "I used to work for a guy just like that"? What's funny? So my character had a, 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 a rather profane catchphrase that caught on. It was inadvertent. I don't think anyone ever saw this catchphrase catching on. But it, but he he in, a, in in a moment where he's going through each of the main characters, he points at one of them and says, "This guy, expletive. This guy blanks." And that seems to become the unofficial uh, catchphrase of who I think became this unofficial patron saint of VCs and startup <laughs> folks everywhere. I would walk down the street and people would yell, hey, this guy blank, this guy blank, this guy blank. And um, I realized it wasn't so much, oh, I worked for a horrible person like your character that I was getting, but it was more, oh my God, you have no idea how accurate your portrayal is. You have no idea. I have. I. I see this guy every single day, and and really, it was just people tickled with the notion. Look, I think what made the character so much fun to play is that somebody, as you said, that thinks that they're the smartest in the room and are most definitely not the smartest in the room. You, you, you really have nothing to lose. You know, when you're already playing a character that's meant to be reviled. Well, you, you're not going to you're not losing any love if people already hate you. And so what what's great about that is it's liberating. And and that type of liberation, I think, is what people sort of feed into. And they realize, well, we don't hate him. We love him. And they, it was it was great fun. Although maybe not so great if you're walking down the street with your kids. It and wasn't someone fun. From across the street yells. Yeah. At. Yeah. I sometimes my, my you know, I'd have my my six year old holding my hand and then someone would scream that and she'd say, what'd they say? And I'd, I'd, I'd say, oh, no, they were talking to someone else or it was. Yeah, <laughs> that was just a crazy person. Uh, my son and I uh, loved the Netflix animated show Inside Job. Oh, how uh, old is your son? So uh, 
Uh, he is 16. Okay, good. That, that's that's a good age. I was because I was going to say it's not definitely not meant for young children. Yes. However, I do have to ask you about um, the Disney Plus series, The Wonderful World of Mickey Mouse, because you're the voice of Mickey. And I may be wrong about this, but I believe you are only the fourth or fifth person ever to voice Mickey Mouse. And the first person was, of course, Walt Disney himself. Now, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure on some level, it's a job like any other. But does the historic nature of that hit you? Oh, of course. And, and it is not actually a job like any other. Look, particularly as a father of three, when Mickey Mouse first sort of presented itself to me, and it was an audition. It was just a phone call saying, do you think you can do this? And I passed. I said, no, I'm, I don't want to touch that. That is, that's hallowed ground. And, and I'm a baritone and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see this. I don't think this is a good idea. And by complete chance, there was a documentary that night about Disney on TV. And he was talking to the interviewer and I heard his voice and he sounded remarkably like me. He had a deep voice. He sounded a lot like this. And the interviewer said, can you still do it, Mr. Disney? Can you still do the voice? And he, it was amazing. I watched what he did with his body and I watched what he did with his face and he, oh, well, hot dog, sure can. I, I looked at him and I thought, oh, it's not coming from here. It's, it's coming from his toes. He's really, he's, 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 he's pulling that voice forward. And I thought, and I called my agent the next day and I said, yeah, let me throw my hat in the ring. And, um, I went to the old animation building and I revoiced his brave little tailor. Uh, they had all the old original sound effects and music and the other characters. And, and I got to, you know, ah, uh, yes, your honor. And how I was all alone. I heard them coming. They were here, there, everywhere, a whole bunch of them. Oh, it was great. It was remarkable. And when I got the job, I thought, you know, this is really a bucket list moment for me. I, I, and I, I really do. I mean this, I, I don't feel like I'm the voice of Mickey. I really just feel like I'm lending a small hand and keeping that, that beautiful dream alive for kids. My kids absolutely love those shorts. It's a real, real treat for me. You can see his work on Netflix, Disney plus HBO max, and go to unicornhunters.com to catch the latest episode of that show. Interesting stuff for investors. This week's show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.